This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams from Southern California. My co-host, Bob Ambrosi, is saving the world in the Massachusetts State House, and he's not with us today. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and just published a book called How to Get Sued. According to the United States Constitution, Article 1, Section 9, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in the cases of rebellion or invasion, the public safety may require it. Last week in a 5-4 to four decision, the Supreme Court ruled in Bemedian v. Bush that suspected terrorists and foreign fighters held by the U.S. military at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, have the right to challenge their detention in federal court. The congressional law passed back in 2006 would limit court jurisdictions to hear so-called habeas corpus challenges to detention, It is a legal question that judges have tackled three times since 2004, including this most recent ruling. Justice Scalia reacted to the ruling by stating that this decision warps our Constitution and the nation will live to regret what the court has done today. President Bush reacted similarly by saying that he disagrees with the ruling, but he will abide by it. And in related Supreme Court news, the court's ruling in Manoff v. Guerin and Guerin v. Omar The court ruled in favor of their right to habeas corpus, but allowed their transfer to a foreign jurisdiction. These cases have strong implications for the rights of suspected terrorists being held in the United States and in other parts of the world, such as Afghanistan and Iraq. In these cases, the two United States citizens, Swaki Omar and Mohammed Manaf, have been detained by the United States and Iraq for more than three years and two years, respectively. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss these significant rulings, habeas corpus rights of Guantanamo detainees and others, the effect of war on terrorism, what this means for detainees, and their reaction to this ruling. Our first guest today is Aziz Huck, who is the Deputy Director of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law. Uh, Professor Huck is counsel in several cases concerning detention and national security policy, including Guerin versus Omar and Manoff versus Green. He has advised and spoken before legislators on issues related to separation of powers, excessive secrecy, and illegal detention. His book with Fritz Schwartz, Unchecked and Unbalanced, Presidential Power in a Time of Terror, was published in 2007, just last year, and was recently reissued in paperback in spring of this year. He also teaches a seminar in just war theory and terrorism at NYU. Before joining the Brennan Center, uh, Attorney Huck clerked for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg during uh, the October 2003 term of the Supreme Court of the United States and for Judge Robert Sack of the Second Circuit Court of Appeals from 2001 and 2002. Welcome to the show, Aziz Huck. Hi, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here. And our next guest is attorney Eddie Lazarus, who's a partner at the firm Aiken Gump. Attorney Lazarus has divided his time between law practice, writing, and teaching. In private practice, he's focused on appellate litigation, handling matters ranging from complex tax, antitrust, and administrative law to intellectual property, constitutional law, and federal Indian law. Since joining Aiken Gump, his diverse roster of clients has ranged from Fortune 50 companies to a national labor union and the California State Assembly. Uh, 
Previously, Eddie served as the Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Central District of California, where he was a member of the Criminal Appeals Section. He was also a former Supreme Court clerk to Justice Harry Blackman. And Attorney Lazarus is the author of two highly acclaimed books, Black Hills White Justice, The Sioux Nation versus the United States, 1775 to the Present, and Closed Chambers, The Rise and Fall of the Modern Supreme Court. Welcome to the show, Attorney Eddie Lazarus. Well, thank you so much for having me. Let's start with Aziz. Give us a little bit of background, please, on your role at the Brennan Center for Justice. I, I'm counsel in uh, the two of the cases that you mentioned, um, where we represent um, U.S. citizens seized and have been detained in Iraq by U.S. forces uh, since uh, late 2004 and early 2005. And what, what made those cases notable was uh, an argument that the government made um, in both cases, uh, as follows. The, the government said, look, the operations in Iraq are multinational. They are authorized by the United Nations. And therefore, uh, any detention decisions taken by uh, those operations, in the context of those operations, aren't really American decisions, even if they're made by uh, American personnel who answer up the chain of command to the Secretary of Defense and then the President. And in so doing, the, the government was actually um, repeating an argument that has been made in other uh, jurisdictions, in other courts. In fact, this was an argument made uh, successfully by, uh, of all countries, France in the European Court of Human Rights. Um, but it, in the context of the American constitutional framework, the notion that you can have a federal official uh, depriving a, a, a citizen, or, although I think this would also be the, true for a non-citizen, of uh, physical liberty and having no recourse, no mechanism for accountability within the uh, American justice system, uh, well, that would be quite a problematic um, setup. It would, in effect, allow the government to uh, outsource accountability for uh, detention operations, uh, so long as it could enter into multinational arrangements, uh, to some other, some other government or some other uh, international entity. Um, and, and that was an, uh, an argument that had, has actually arisen in a couple of cases before our cases, uh, most notably the, the, uh, a case called Abu Ali uh, that was decided in the D.C. District Court in 2004. Um, and what was interesting is that uh, although we, we lost uh, unanimously on a uh, transfer point that you described, um, the court also unanimously rejected this argument that the government had been pressing and, and actually had made into uh, more than two-thirds of their brief. Um, and that's, a, that's a, I think, will be fairly significant, although significant in a kind of dog-that-didn't-bark way, in that it will, that whereas we could have had a, a principles law that would have uh, potentially very dangerous applications effectively shut down by the Supreme Court, uh, before those dangerous applications can evolve. Well, Eddie, your book, Present in Closed Chambers, addresses some of the issues that we're seeing in this case, the closed decisions and so forth. Tell us about your book and how it plays into what's going on right now. Well, Closed Chambers is a critique of the modern court. Uh, it mainly focuses on the Rehnquist Court, but the last several chapters uh, uh, get into the issues of the, of, um, uh, of the Roberts Court as well. And uh, I guess there are a couple of things about, uh, about the recent decisions that resonate with the themes of my book. Uh, one is the fact that uh, it is such a closely divided court and, and a very, very bitterly divided court. I mean, in, in the Boumedian case, 
as you mentioned in your intro, uh, Justice Scalia uh, basically uh, accuses the majority of uh, being responsible for the unnamed deaths of future Americans who will perish in in the war on terror because uh, inevitably that decision, in in his view, is going to lead to the uh, release uh, of very dangerous people. Uh, Why he believes that, I think, is uh, up to serious uh, question, but it does indicate just how uh, how nasty things have gotten at the Supreme Court in, in many of these uh, areas of law. Uh, and the second thing that I, that I think resonates with the themes of my book is, uh, is the role the court is carving out for itself in uh, resolving our great national disputes. Uh, whether the issue is calling a presidential election uh, or uh, having the final say over uh, the detaining of, uh, of so-called enemy combatants, uh, this is a court uh, that relishes its own power uh, and that uh, interjects itself uh, into and puts itself in a very central place uh, in all national disputes, uh, whether uh, they are uh, resolving social issues like abortion or uh, uh, all the way over to adjudicating the war powers. Well, these give us a little bit of background about this current ruling in Boumediene. Sure. Let me build on um, what Eddie said, because I, I think that, uh, with some caveats, I'd agree with that. that what we have in Bermadian is essentially the court saying, uh, we meant it the first time, comma, damn it, period. Um, <laughs> back in 2004, uh, the Supreme Court uh, handed down a decision in a case called Rasool, which was the, uh, the first set of challenges brought by Guantanamo detainees against their uh, detention there. And in uh, Rasul, the the Supreme Court held that as a matter of the habeas statute, the the federal statute that gives uh, courts power to hear habeas cases, that the detainees were allowed to come into court and make their cases, uh, to make their claims against unlawful detention. After 2004, Congress enacted two statutes that uh, purported to limit or to strip away uh, habeas rights and to channel detainees into a different forum. Uh, It it would channel detainees not into the the lower court, but into a court of appeal, where, crucially, um, the the, the detainees' ability to uh, raise and have adjudicated questions of fact as opposed to questions of law would be very, very limited, uh, even non-existent. And this is very important because really a, a goodly number of the, of, the, of, the cha- of the challenges, of the concerns, of the arguments of wrongful detention around and in Guantanamo are about questions of fact, that the government simply got it wrong. Um, and so by moving things into the Court of Appeals, all of those arguments go away, that the detainees don't have a, a meaningful forum in which to make them. What the Supreme Court held in the Bermedian case is that as a matter of constitutional right, uh, detainees at Guantanamo and potentially elsewhere have the authority to come into federal court and to, um, into a federal district court and to, re- and to make their challenges not only to the legal basis of detention, but also to the facts that underlie the detention. 
and this is this is the the what, where the echo of what Eddie was saying comes in is that this is really um, an example of the court protecting its own uh, jurisdiction, its own power to hear cases. And uh, no matter how conservative or liberal courts tend to be, they are keen on uh, ensuring that it is the court, not some other branch, that controls the valves that let cases in and out of the federal courts. Um, what the court didn't do in the Bermedian case is answer any of the pressing substantive uh, or even procedural questions about, well, how is it that these cases ought to be adjudicated? So the court very clearly um, said uh, it was not speaking to the, um, the real, one of the, the sort of the, the, the elephants in the room questions, which is um, what power to detain does the government have? What is the scope of the detention authority? Um, and, and so what the court has done is to ensure that um, it, that it and the federal courts maintain discretion over some or, or maintain power to ensure that the, the, the hearings for the Guantanamo detainees are meaningful hearings. So it's the federal courts and not the political branches that control the, the scope of those hearings. Um, but it's told us very little about the substantive law or the procedures that will be used in those hearings. Um, and, and so you can, you can look at the Bermedian decision as... Um, uh, uh, as a branch of government effectively protecting its own interests. Now, where the only thing that I would caveat to, to, uh, the, uh, to Ed's description is, is that the judiciary is one of three co-equal branches, and we operate under the assumption uh, when we talk about the separation of powers that the executive and that Congress will protect their own interests. We assume that there is a, a sort of jealousy, um, the, the notion that ambition will check ambition, to quote the Federalist. And if we are to um, accept the, the proposition that courts are co-equal with the other two branches, if we're to accept the proposition that courts are part of the separation of powers, then really shouldn't we be not terribly surprised when courts act to protect their own uh, power, to, uh, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, whether they can hear cases or whether um, they can, whether, whether the government, whether the other branches of government can act in a way as to make uh, the courts effectively a amateur of a predetermined policy without any meaningful input or corrective force being applied by the courts. Shouldn't we expect the courts, as a matter of separation of powers principles, in other words, to stand up for themselves? Right. Eddie, is, is this kind of a modern-day Marbury versus Madison case? And, and why wouldn't the court just simply defer to the military courts? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't disagree with, uh, uh, with much of what Aziz said. Um, but uh, there is a difference between Rasul uh, and Boumediene. And the difference is that in Razul, uh, what you were looking at was the executive branch acting uh, really in the absence of any uh, particularized congressional support, uh, and the courts coming in and saying, oh, no, unchecked executive authority of that kind is, is too much. Uh, but what you have in Boumediene is uh, you have Congress acting not once but twice. So it's a question of, the, of whether the courts would defer uh, not merely to the executive acting alone, uh, but uh, to the executive and Congress uh, joining forces. 
Uh, and here, while it is true that the judiciary, of course, is a co-equal branch, uh, as a de facto matter, there, the judiciary is putting itself in the place of having the last word over these groups. Now, I'm not, I'm not arguing against the result in Boumedia, and I actually think the court probably got it right, although I think it was a, a fairly close question. Um, but uh, it, it, is, it, it, it is true that, that uh, here it's, it's kind of two against one uh, in the constellation of things. Um, and, uh, but, but at the end of the day, what in my, what in my view tips the scale is the point that uh, Aziz made about trying to get the answer right. Uh, what the court was really saying, I think, in Boumediene is, look, you've made this terrible problem for us, for sticking these people in Guantanamo for an unlimited amount of time. This is not a typical war which might last uh, some limited number of years. This war has already lasted six years, which is very long by the standards of war, and it might go on for a generation or more than one generation. At what point is there a limit on the power uh, of the, uh, the non-judicial branches, I'll call them, to hold these people beyond the reach of the law? And I think the court finally looked at this and said, this is just too much. We have to have something. And while the court didn't spell out, as, as Aziz points out, the, the court did not spell out any of the details. At the end of the day, what it did is it reserved its right uh, to force the, the government to sort of put up or shut up on the evidence and to give the detainees a chance, a meaningful chance of some kind to say, wait a minute, they really got this wrong and we, I want to present my countervailing evidence. Is there any right of appeal from the military courts into the federal system? Yes, there, there, was, a, there was a direct right to the Court of Appeal in the District of Columbia, but that was a limited right because... Courts of appeals don't engage in fact-finding, and what, what uh, Justice Kennedy found quite important in his majority opinion was the fact that um, the, in, in the normal habeas situation, a detainee uh, can come forward with new evidence, uh, evidence that wasn't available at the, in, when the initial determination was made, and say, wait a minute, look, look at this, I, I can prove that what happened here is, isn't right. Um, and in the courts of appeal, there was absolutely no ability to do that. And so uh, he, there was even an example from, from Guantanamo of someone you know, who said, talk to my employer. They, that employer will, will vouch for the fact that you've got the wrong guy. But the, the employer was unavailable because these people are abroad, of course. Uh, and, uh, well, what if that evidence subsequently became available? Under the congressional statute, that person's completely out of luck. Because of the availability of habeas, that, that material can be brought before the court and a, and a new evaluation can be made. Aziz, how does the Constitution handle this issue? Well, the, the Constitution, um, as in many cases, says very little about uh, either what uh, habeas corpus uh, means or its scope uh, or how it should be applied in what Justice Kennedy, I think, quite accurately called a situation that is almost unprecedented. Um, the Constitution simply says in Article 1 that the, 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 the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended except in cases of invasion and rebellion. It doesn't tell us uh, what, the, uh, what, the, what the writ of habeas corpus um, involves, although lawyers at the time and legislators and those in the uh, Philadelphia Convention would have had a, a fairly full sense of habeas as the procedural remedy to executive detention uh, as it had been used or, or, or as, it had, as it had arisen uh, into use, particularly over the, the 17th century in, in, uh, in, in England. Um, 
Beyond that, though, um, the, uh, as Justice Kennedy concludes in his opinion, the, the historical record is, um, contains uh, material that can be interpreted both ways about the scope and the application of uh, habeas corpus, uh, such, that it, such that while we can draw from the Constitution in its historical context a general principle, the idea that habeas exists to protect against um, unjust executive detention, um, it's, it's actually uh, hard to draw specifics from the, that history. And rather, you have to take the principle and think about how to apply it in its, uh, given the facts of today. Um, and I'd add that this is sort of a, a lesson in the, uh, the problems of originalism uh, insofar as, uh, as with many uh, constitutional questions, you have a piece of constitutional text that tells you relatively little. You have a historical backdrop that, um, yes, you can make arguments one way or the other on its basis, but in fact, there is evidence going both ways, and people at the time of the founding may have understood things, that the same piece of text in uh, either slightly or dramatically varying ways, and um, at least in its present application. But yet we can be certain of a larger principle, the idea of courts as a restraint, on executive detention that surely has application here and that we need to work out, uh, as Justice Kennedy says, uh, will be worked out in the future, uh, how that uh, principle applies in practice. Well, at this point in our program, we need to take a short break. When we return, we'll talk more about the future of Guantanamo and beyond when, when we get back. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at MayHavePleaseTheCourt.com, likewise Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, and our guests today are Aziz Huck, Deputy Director from the Brennan School of Justice at NYU School of Law, and Attorney Eddie Lazarus, who's a partner at the firm of Aiken Gump and author of Present and Closed Chambers, Rise, fall, and future of the modern Supreme Court. Well, Eddie, in uh, Ruth Ginsburg's chambers, what was discussed before this opinion was issued? 
Well, actually, uh, I think Aziz is the one who clerked for uh, Justice oh, you're right. I clerked for Justice Blackman, but I think the idea would be basically the same, which is uh, before, uh, before oral argument in this case, there would have been a thorough uh, memorandum prepared by one of the clerks. There would have been a very healthy discussion uh, of all the legal principles uh, uh, that uh, are involved in the case, whether it's uh, uh, the application of, of habeas corpus to people who are held in a place like Guantanamo, which, where there is not actual uh, de jure sovereignty uh, by, uh, in, in held by the United States, but that where the United States has basically absolute control. Um, and then the question of whether, you know, what, what is it that habeas requires, assuming uh, that it does apply to, uh, to aliens held in Guantanamo. Uh, and uh, uh, while there probably not be any kind of drafting of any kind of opinions at that point, uh, uh, questions that, uh, that Justice Ginsburg would want answered uh, would have been developed uh, uh, for oral argument, uh, and probably a pretty good idea of where she was going to uh, come out on, on the issue. Aziz, but how did the court get around the aspect of the Constitution essentially saying that, you know, when a, and I'll paraphrase it, but in a time of war, habeas corpus rights can be suspended? Well, the, what the Constitution says is, is that um, in a time of invasion or rebellion, which is not quite the same as war, um, uh, uh, the writ of habeas corpus may be suspended. And it, it has been the general understanding that it, it is up to Congress to actually suspend the writ. And what's notable in the, in the litigation uh, that preceded Bermedian is that not one time, not one time, did the government argue that the relevant jurisdiction stripping statutes were a suspension of the writ. No one made the case that Congress had properly exercised um, Article 1, Section 9 authority to suspend the writ. To the contrary, the government argued that the remedial mechanism in the Court of Appeals was an adequate substitute for the writ. And so th there's no real question here about the court circumventing the Constitution or what have you. Um, everyone agreed this was not a case in which habeas had been suspended. Right. The real, the real question became whether the alternative procedures that were set out uh, in the Military Commissions Act were sufficient to substitute for habeas. In other words, that habeas was complied with enough, I guess, in, in, in some sense of the, of, of the word. And, uh, uh, and the court, uh, five to four, said the, sub, the, the alternative procedures just weren't good enough. And I think that the, the, the really hard constitutional question that, that um, Bermedian raises, and I, I will be very frank that having read the opinion, um, once thoroughly and, and again sort of more superficially, I, I don't have a, a worked out answer to this, is, is what is the relationship between habeas corpus on the one hand and the due process clause on the other hand? Uh, I, I think that the assumption on both the government and the detainee side, the, uh, at least on the part of lawyers, had been that habeas corpus exists to vindicate uh, due process rights. And that was a, a, an understanding, a sort of coupling of constitutional um, sections that received a lot of support from the Hamdi decision of 2004, both from Justice O'Connor's plurality opinion in that case and from uh, Justice uh, Scalia's dissent in that case. Um, but here in uh, Justice Kennedy's opinion, um, you have a, a fairly clear 
decoupling of these two ideas of, of, of what you're entitled to as a matter of due process um, and what you're entitled to as a matter of habeas corpus, where the latter now seems to be more than the former. Uh, and there are a couple of different ways of reading uh, this, this new question that I think nobody had quite framed or focused on before, um, but I, I have no doubt that, that um, an unreasonable number of trees will be felled to publish law reviews answering and debating the question. <laughs> Eddie, Eddie, play out the practical aspects of this case for, for us. Uh, an a detainee goes to federal court, files a writ of habeas corpus, the court hears the case, finds its facts. What are the options that the court can do? It obviously can grant habeas corpus and free the prisoner, what else can it do? Well, Justice Kennedy is at some pains to say uh, that there's almost an infinite variety of things, you know, whatever a judge could imagine. But but one thing that I certainly could do, could, could imagine, is a remand. In other words, um, a court uh, not being willing to free somebody outright, but where sufficient questions were raised about whether that person was properly designated an enemy combatant, that it would be sent back. Uh, to the military for further investigation on the question while that person remained in custody. I think that's probably the most natural thing. But we don't really know at this point any number of questions. How are they going to deal with the fact that there may be a lot of um, secret intelligence information involved in the, in the fact-finding? Um, how are they going to deal with uh, if, if some of the information being presented was uh, elicited through these harsh interrogation techniques? The, there are an infinite number of questions, or a near infinite number of questions, that are going to have to be worked out uh, by the district courts on habeas. One of the things that Justice Kennedy suggested is that, that perhaps these would all be consolidated uh, in a single district court, or, or perhaps there will be some test cases where they work through these procedures. But um, one of the reasons why I think uh, Justice Scalia's opinion, which is so vitriolic, was very premature, is that we don't know that a single person uh, is going to get actually freed uh, on the basis of of, uh, of having access to habeas corpus. Uh, and, it, and it may be quite some time uh, before that question is even answered. So, um, and, and I would expect most district court judges are going to be very deferential to the military on these points, but want, you know, and it's really going to be a matter of wanting to satisfy themselves. And in some cases it may be that the military really doesn't have that much to go on. In other cases it may be that the military has overwhelming evidence. So we just really need to see how this plays out. If I can add to that and, and, and really echo and strengthen that, I think that, that we'll see a bifurcation into two, two categories of cases. Uh, one is uh, the cases in which the, the military knows that they can't even uh, get, to the, get to first base in terms of evidence. Um, a, a lot of those people have already been let go. Uh, Guantanamo has been thinned through attrition considerably since the Rasul decision. Um, but nonetheless, I think that in cases where the, the government, where the military knows that it can't put up or shut up, it's going, to, um, it's going to try and get rid of people, although it's been trying to get rid of people for the last three or four years, uh, and that's run up against innumerable obstacles. Uh, unsurprisingly, other countries are unwilling to take people who have been branded the worst of the worst for four years and who have been held in what um, an article, I believe, in the Washington Post yesterday has, has not unreasonably described as a, as a camp for, or, or not implausibly described as a camp where people who were previously wholly innocent have been radicalized by the terrorist in the cell next door. So, so some people will be released. In the second category of cases, the cases in which the government decides to litigate, at least this Justice Department has, will, has 
both the tools and plenty of incentives to come up with threshold, filibustering procedural litigation that means that nothing will get done before a new president enters office. There is no reason why you would even, there, it is very unlikely that you'll even get, these detainees will even get through the first uh, set of district court litigation before the election. They're certainly not going to get through the district court litigation, the inevitable appeal to the, to the Court of Appeals, and then to the Supreme Court. So I, I would um, um, I, I would actually phrase it stronger than Ed did. I, 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 I see very, very little likelihood of a release of, 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 a, of a federal court coming to the point of ordering release um, any time in the near future. And I would, I would recall also that there was a case, I believe it was, the, um, it, was a, it was one of the Uyghurs who are detained at Guantanamo, where Judge Robertson uh, came to the conclusion, based upon uncontested facts, that the detainee had been, was currently wrongfully detained, even under the allegations that the government made against that detainee. But he also said, I have no power to release this detainee. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to tell the military to bring him back to the United States? Because I'm not going to do that. Am I supposed to tell the military to uh, move him to the Cuban side of the base and let him go into Cuba? Am I supposed to order the military to ship him to Saudi Arabia, where the Saudis say, no, we don't want this guy? What does it mean for a federal court to issue a release order in, a, in one of these cases? That's, that's not just something that is a distant, a distant way in the future. It's also something that, that I've not heard anybody give a clear answer to. Well, we, we've got a lot of questions that remain unanswered and a lot of things to think about, but we've reached the end of our program, so it's time to get your contact information so our listeners can reach you. So, Eddie, let's start with you and have you give up your contact information, and then we'll turn to Aziz. Well, the easiest way to reach me is at elazarus at akengump.com, and uh, look forward to hearing from your listeners. Great. And Aziz? I'm at Aziz, A-Z-I-Z, period, Huck, H-U-Q, at nyu.edu. And uh, I second uh, uh, Eddie's welcome to, to listeners. Well, that does it for Lawyer to Lawyer this week. Remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at thelegaltalknetwork.com. We'd like to thank our guests for being with us today. Remember, you can also find all of your Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes as well. We'll be back again next week to discuss another great legal topic. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.